Open up with me to Revelation chapter 2. It is a short section tonight that we look at in Revelation chapter 2. Only verses 8 to 11. We've been saying each time as we open up here, we just have a, we're so privileged that the Lord Jesus would give us this, uh, this section of scripture. We're not, not just what it, now, now I'm never going to, I'm not even going to say that because I'm never going to draw a distinction between what Jesus says and what the apostles say. Remember what an apostle says, Jesus says, but it's just this beautiful, uh, this beautiful space where, where, where it's not just him inspiring an apostle to write a letter, but, but himself in the letter being pictured as speaking directly to churches. I love that Jesus relates so closely and personally and intimately to local churches. And it's so helpful to be able to come to these letters and ask uh, specifically, what does Jesus say? Not the church guru, but what does Jesus say a church ultimately ought to be manifesting itself um, as? What behaviors, what characteristics, what, what things ought to define and identify a church? And as we come to this letter to, uh, to Smyrna, it's really not, I mean, it's written to Smyrna, but it's not about Smyrna. It's all about Jesus. As, as we read what Jesus says, it's, it's really just a letter about himself that's somewhat referenced to Smyrna. I love how Christ-centric it is, but look here as we read from verse 8 to the end of verse 11 in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Hear now the word of the living God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what, it, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless his own inerrant, inspired, authoritative word in our midst this evening. Well, we see in this, as as Jesus writes the letter to the church in Smyrna, we realize uh, historically, and especially what Jesus references, they are a persecuted church. This is one of their key markers. In fact, we're going to find that they don't have any rebukes coming against them tonight. Jesus doesn't say, like he says to other churches, I have this against you. You're doing well, but here's something you need to repent of. In fact, he just gives them pure positive if you count a promise of persecution as a positive. It's not all about, uh, uh, he's not rebuking them for sin, he's not punishing them, but it is, in another sense, not all positive. They're doing great, but they're going to be persecuted. In fact, I I would say, and I would submit, that the reason he has nothing to rebuke them about is because they're so positive in their obedience that they warrant the persecution. I don't think he's going soft on them because of the persecution. He goes, look, you got some things wrong, but I won't kick a dog while he's down. You know, it's not that. It's that they are a church that is so actively obedient that they are getting a name for themselves and they've got a target on their back such that they are being persecuted and so the two things are one. When the church persecutes, often the case is that Jesus will bless. Jesus Jesus is smiling at the obedience. We're going to see a few things about Jesus tonight and like I said, it's all about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is sovereign. Second of all, Jesus is resurrected. Thirdly, Jesus knows about the suffering of his church. 
Fourthly, Jesus is sovereign over the suffering of his church. And fifthly, Jesus is sovereign over death. Let's start up in verse 8 where we see Jesus introduce himself. We've, we've, in, we've reminded ourselves every week the way he introduces himself to each church is different and the way he introduces himself to each church is intentional. He does it in a way that is very relevant to the situation of the church that he's writing to. And so he says to the church of Smyrna that he, he introduces himself as the first and the last and secondly as who died and came to life. Jesus naming himself as the first and the last is is saying to them that I am the one and only sovereign. I am the eternal God before whom no one existed. I'm the first, after whom no one will take my place. I'm not leaving any room for successes or, or who will be taking my throne when I die. I am the first, I am the last, no other name is before me, no other name will outlast me. I am the infinite, eternal, sovereign, divine God. We know he's saying that because he's stealing from Isaiah's language. Three times in Isaiah, God uses the language of the first and the last, and he's always using it to drive home the fact that he is divine, he is true God. He uses it frequently in what we already alluded to this morning, the trial of the false gods, where God is literally making the point, I'm Yahweh, there's no other God, and he calls himself the first and the last. He says that in Isaiah 41 verse 4. He says it in 48 verse 12. And he says it in Isaiah 44 verse 6. Listen to this one. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, The Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You ever looking for a, where did Jesus ever say that he was God? When you're debating one of your, your Muslim, your Jehovah's Witness, your Mormon mates, you're looking for a claim to exclusive divinity. Jesus is Yahweh right there. Revelation chapter two, verse eight. Jesus is using this language to say of himself, I'm the same divine God. I am the son that is, that is the, the, the second person of the Trinity, which is the same divine God that claimed all these things back in Isaiah. I'm that sovereign. I'm that eternal. I'm that in control. But remember, he's writing to a struggling, persecuted, suffering church. So in their context, he's, they shouldn't just be hearing Jesus is in control, but Jesus is in control of our suffering. And then you get to the next point. So that's one way that he's specifically naming, uh, identifying himself to the church. I'm in control of every, it looks crazy. It looks like I left the earth and left the world up to its own devices. It looks like I'm letting the world do whatever it wants to my bride. Don't worry, I'm the first and the last. Secondly, though, he says, in a way to relate himself to them, who died and came to life. Jesus, not only is Jesus sovereign, divine God, Jesus is resurrected. To the church whose members are being killed, to the church who needs to keep on putting out advertisements for an opening position in the pastoral staff because another one got their head lopped off, to that church who keeps on having people killed, Jesus is saying, yep, same here. I also died. I am one who has died. And I'm one who came to life. 
so that the dying members of the church, as they're being, being, being dragged before uh, the authorities and dragged before the animals and dragged before the sword and dragged behind, beside, toward the, the, the beheading block, they're remembering, my Lord, who is the prophet, priest, and king, standing among the seven lampstands, ruling the nations, that Lord has also died. And he came to life. And that's what I have to look forward to as well. Jesus is is identifying himself to them as the resurrected one. This is encouraging them on two fronts. First of all, when you die, because Jesus atoned for our sins in 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 his death and resurrection, when we die in persecution or otherwise, we go straight to be with him in a spiritual place we call heaven. Secondly, the encouragement is not just we go spiritually somewhere when we die, but we get resurrection, which Jesus has. That is that our bodies will come back up out of the ground. Our bodies, in, in, in the same time as the whole world being recreated, we're going to get new eternal bodies. There's a double encouragement in the fact that we come back to life after our death. So before you move further, you need to then put those two things together and recognize the infinite mystery that is wrapped up in what he just called himself. He just claimed to be the immortal unkillable, sovereign, divine God with life in and of himself. No one can touch him. He's immortal to the infinite degree. Oh, and he died. Already wrapped up in how Jesus is relating himself, identifying himself, opening up the letter to the the Smyrnians is that he is the God of the gospel. This is not just a disconnected God. This is not two distinct little uh, people or manifestations of God, one who rules, one who dies. But Jesus is this great mystery poured into one. How can he possibly be infinite immortal God and the one who died and came to life? Because it's not that the immortality of God died. That's literally impossible. It's that God joined himself truly, mysteriously, historically, in the first century, to a human nature. Not just a body with the divine soul on the inside, but a human body, soul, mind, emotions, hormones, all of it. He took on all of it. Why? For us and for our salvation, the creeds say. So that he could, in human flesh, die for human sin. So that he could, in that human death, satisfy God's wrath against human sinners. And being both God and man, he can reconcile human sinners and the divine Yahweh. This is why Jesus, this is how Jesus can be the first and the last, and the one who died and came to life is that he is the first and last who took on a human nature in order to be he who died and came to life. So Jesus, this this wonderful, glorious Jesus of the gospel, is sovereign, and he is resurrected, And now look at verse 9. He knows the suffering of his church. He says to Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. He's he's talking about what they're going through being being a tribulation. In other words, an intense, focused, period of suffering that is coming upon them. Not just, tribulation is not just difficulty. Tribulation is attack. It's focused um, opposition onto the church that is causing their suffering. This is what they're experiencing. 
This is also having some kind of um, effect on the income and the economical status of a lot of the church because then he follows it up with, you know, it's almost one phrase, I know your tribulation and your poverty. These things are going hand in hand. They're, they're being kicked out of jobs. They're being refused promotions. They're having their goods plundered from them. They're having their, their fathers killed and income is lost. They're having their, their, uh, all of their, their things stolen and given out for free. They, they are being uh, destroyed to a point of poverty. Jesus knows this. He's telling them, I know what you are going through. You, you are doing so well in representing me that you know what? You're getting treated the way I got treated. You're poor like I was poor. You're tribulated like I was constantly tribulated at every turn of my earthly ministry. Even my family said that I was crazy, probably demon-possessed. Jesus knows they are being like him and therefore they are experiencing response from the world like him. And yet he calls them rich because he knows what is ultimately true about them, which is what we just said. They're so much like him. They are so unified to him that they are rich. This is why they're able to, as Luther said, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, the truth abideth still. They, we know when we are unified to Christ, when we have Jesus, we can let everything else go. When we have Jesus and we are going through persecution, if you lose everything, Jesus still says, you are rich. You have riches that the kings of the earth know nothing of. You have the thing that people chase riches to try and get. You have peace with God. You have the ability, though a sore back after getting beaten, though a sore swollen face after getting smacked, you can lay down on your bed at night and know that if death comes for you, it's all bliss. They don't have that. They need money. They need, they need cars. They need houses. They need investment properties and, and, and shirts that show off their riches. They need lots of friends. They need important friends. They need all that because they lack the substance, which is peace with God a settled conscience, a satisfaction of the soul that doesn't cling to dying things. You are rich, Jesus is saying. His most persecuted church, it seems, in Revelation. He's telling them, you are rich. And then he goes on to detail in a little bit more uh, uh, specification some more of the tribulation. And in fact, the, this, is like, this is the mechanics of the, of the tribulation. He's mentioned the tribulation. Now he's going to start talking about how exactly it's occurring. He says, uh, and, he knows, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In the first century, one of the things we see is that many thousands, tens of thousands of, of Jewish people or Israelites, the, the physical descendants of, of, Is, of Abraham, had believed in their Messiah, received the promises, and were engrafted into, into the church, the Jews and the Gentiles alongside. However, there was, there was many Often the elites, uh, uh, but, but other, you know, the, the, the hoi polloi included, many of the Jews had rejected this idea that was folly to them, that was weakness to them. They despised the news of the cross, that the anointed holy one would be butchered on a cross under the Romans. They didn't like it. They didn't, they didn't believe Jesus. They rejected him as they rejected the prophets. Those people continued their attack against Jesus' followers and disciples and preachers, the church. And we see it come up in Paul's life. Uh, many of the cities he would go to, some of the most vehement opposition would be from the local synagogue of Jews who hated what he was saying. 
This happened uh, uh, throughout the, the, the book of Acts. It happens, uh, we, we see references to it in Galatians and in James and in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the, the, Jew, the, the, the unbelieving Jews, we will call them, oppose Jesus and his church, and, and, and we're told it's largely out of jealousy. Paul says it's out of jealousy. It says uh, a couple of times that they, they sought to kill Jesus out of their jealousy. Pilate could tell that they brought him because they were jealous of his popularity. Now, often it's said that they, they saw the following the Christians were getting, so decided to, you know, start getting, uh, getting against the Christians. Um, this was part of the heartbreaking reality for Paul. He wanted his cousins and brothers and tribesmen and kinsmen and national belongers of, of Israel to believe in their Messiah, and they would not. And they were attacking the church. And, and so they continue to call themselves a synagogue of God. You know, a collection is based, a synagogue is basically a, a Jewish church, a collection of Jews that would come together and teach the Old Testament scriptures every Sabbath. You'd go to your local synagogue, and on the big holidays, you'd visit the big temple in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus is saying there's a group of people called Jews, who get together in a synagogue, they want to pretend they're worshipping the God whose son they butchered. You don't even need to put the word son in there. They're pretending to worship the God who they butchered on a cross. They're pretending to be the true Jews while they're celebrating the death of the Jewish king, Jesus. They're, they're pretending to be the true synagogue of God while they are persecuting the bride of God, Jesus Christ's church. So Jesus says, let's just cut to the short. Any of the Israelite, fleshly Israelites who oppose the gospel in the church, we're going to call them now a synagogue of, slate of Satan. Slayton, that's a name. Of Satan. That's what Jesus says. Because you can't kill your king and pretend to be a respectful citizen, a responsible belonger of that kingdom. And yet he uses this name Satan very intentionally throughout this letter. So he's going to call him Satan. He's going to call him the devil. He's going to, um, uh, uh, you, you know, the enemy is one of the other words he's going to use. His, uh, Satan's name is, is often uh, translated uh, otherwise as the slanderer. That's what it can mean. Uh, some, uh, the word devil is meaning, you know, the, the enemy, the opposer, the, the adversary. And I think that Jesus is calling them a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue of the slanderous one who accuses the Christians because they themselves are accusing the Christians. Jesus is saying they're acting like their father, the devil, which is what he told them in John's gospel. He said, you are just like your dad, Satan. I can see him. He looks just like you, lying, hating the truth, despising me, wanting to kill. You've got your father's identity. So he's saying the same thing here. He's calling them a synagogue of Satan because they are slandering the church. And this is, this is the how the Jews were persecuting. So it wasn't so much that the Jews were dragging the Christian church out into the open and beating them. They were more clever than that. What they were doing was they were going to the Roman authorities and ratting out the Christians, telling them where they worshipped, telling them all sorts of lies, which is why Jesus calls it the slander of those who call themselves Jews and are not. So they're slandering the Christians. They go to the Roman authorities, and just like they did to Jesus, just like they did to Paul, they're saying, now these guys, are, they're trying to take away taxes from Caesar. They're trying to start a revolt. They're trying to throw the empire on its head. They hate you. They're, they're doing all sorts of wacky things against the empire. You should go and, you know, here's their address. Here's where they meet for church. And so Rome was doing the hands-on persecution while the Jews were doing the background manipulation. This is how it was working in Smyrna. Uh, if you did not, now if you, if you lived in Smyrna, uh, you would be familiar with the fact that Smyrna is known as having two 
altars or temples to the Caesar. That is, that they would worship their emperor, the Caesar, as semi-god, and once they die, they you know, sort of elevate and graduate up to full divine status. That's, that's one of the views they had. And, and this wasn't believed everywhere, all over the empire, but certain pockets of the world really held on to this belief that our emperor is part god or just about fully god. And Smyrna was one of those, those hotbeds of loyalty to Rome in that sense. They had two, te- not one, Two temples to Caesar in Smyrna. And at certain times of the year, if you're a responsible citizen of Smyrna, you were dragged out into the festival and everybody was expected to offer your little pinch of incense. Bend the knee, kiss the, kiss the symbol, add the, you know, do the sacrifice, whatever you're supposed to do, and say, Caesar is Lord. Kaiser ha kurios. Everybody was expected to say that. And if you didn't, well, now there's a problem. Who wouldn't say that? Who would live in Smyrna and not, year after year, month after month, confess that Caesar is Lord? Only enemies of Caesar. Only enemies of the state who deserved to die. Except the Jews who were politically allowed their freedom of religion because they'd won it through wars. But anybody else who did not bow down and say Caesar is Lord must be an enemy of Caesar and deserve to die. And in fact, that's how it was happening to the Christians. They had once been faithful sacrifices to Caesar, once loved the empire and would die and live for the, for the emperor and all that they believed. But when they were converted, they were now missing from the roll call at the Caesar worship altars. They were not going to those festivals. And so their name was on a list and they could be punished, sometimes killed because of their refusal to believe and confess that Caesar was Lord. So this is how the Jews were slant. This is why Jesus uses the language, and this is how the Jews were slandering the Christians in order to get them persecuted. So Jesus says, "The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan." He knows what they are going through. The Christians who are who are having persecution all around them. They're being rejected by their old friends, by their family, by their old former citizens, and even their king Caesar is turning on them. And yet Jesus says, not me, you're not rejected by me. I know your tribulation. I can see distinctly and specifically every one of you that is going through every ounce of suffering. He sees it. And then he ups the ante and he tells them it's going to get worse. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, not only do I know your, your, your tribulation, but do not fear what you are about to suffer. Oh, yeah, great. You'd think out of love he'd say, and I see it, I know it, and so I will, I will slow it down. Do not fear because I will stop the persecution. No. Do not fear what you are about to go through. Remember, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. He knows all things that happen before they come to pass. So surely he'd use that Armenian foreknowledge to stop what's about to come to pass. No. He's saying, not I just know what they're going to do, but they're going to do what I've ordained that they do for my own purposes. Look at what he says. He doesn't just say, I know what they're going to do. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Jesus is telling them that what's about to happen to you looks like it's the Romans doing it. No, it's the slanderous Jews, isn't it? It looks like they're doing it. No, no, no. It's the devil doing it. He's throwing you in prison. He's tribulating you. But even more than that, 
I'm ordaining that this happen to my church on earth, that you may be tested. See, it's, it's the human's attacks. It's the, it's the earthly opposition. It's the devil's schemes. It's Jesus' plan. It's Jesus' purpose. So that my church comes out of this more pure, more tested, more refined, more character, more persevering. That's the kind of church I want. So Jesus says, do not fear. Not because he's going to fix it, not because he's going to stop it, but because he has a purpose and not one of them will be left on their own. At every point that one of them is going to get hurled before the altar, every one of them is, that, that is going to have a sword come down on the back of their neck, every single one of them is going to be able to have the confidence to say, take the head, I'm going to Jesus. Take my goods, take my riches, I've got Jesus, because they can remind themselves, Jesus told me he was with me. He knew about this. He's watching me right now. I will not betray him. I'll go to him. Send me. So he's been told, it's for Jesus' own purpose. You're going to be tested. That's why I'm letting the devil persecute you. Just as a side note, you see this in Revelation? The people of the devil and the people of God are so closely related to each other that is that whoever our spiritual father is, for us it's, it's Jesus. Anybody outside of Jesus, it's the devil. That sometimes God just pictures in the book of Revelation in this imagery, he'll just go, you know what? It's Satan, the dragon, fighting Jesus. But in real time, it's the people of the earth opposing the church. But Jesus so identifies with us that he'll say to Paul, hey, Paul, you've never laid a finger on me. I'm in heaven. I just came down right now. But why are you persecuting me? Because his church is being persecuted. So we see this again. The devil is attacking you, but I will be with you. And he says very, uh, even, it sound, sounds specific, but we'll get into it. He says, uh, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. A little note, prison is not a punishment in the Roman world. Prison is just death row. You're in prison until they, you get your, your call up to die. You're not in prison as a punishment. They, they didn't do free meals and a free bed like we do, free cable TV. You're just in prison until you get your judgment set and then you go and die. So to be heard that you've been thrown in prison is being told you will have death sentences. You're going to die. And then he says uh, uh, that, you know, that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, it might mean it would be very strange if it meant it would be far too quick in the legal sense if, if they were going to be arrested, tried, killed within 10 days, and it was going to happen to a bunch of them. Maybe what it means is over a period of 10 days, many of them would be arrested. I'm going to side with MacArthur on this one and say 10 days is probably, especially in the book of Revelation, just, in, just a symbolic number for saying, it's a number? Man, it's not all that big. You know, Jesus, Jesus is, is not given the number of 1,000, not given the number of 777 or something like that. He's just saying, look, it's 10. There's a bunch of days. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to hurt, but it's not forever. It's just 10 days. Literal 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 months, 10 years, we don't know. The point is a period of time that is defined. We don't know how long it's going to be, but we know that Jesus knows how long it's going to be. He can see it. He can see the end. He told us there is an end. We will rely on him, rest in him while the tribulation occurs. So Jesus has said that you're going to be tribulated for these 10 days. And then note what Jesus says. Uh, <clears throat> be faithful unto death. Be 
faithful unto death. You would think if he was a modern day preacher, he would say, now you're under a little bit of rebuke at the moment, Smyrna, because you're going to be suffering. And then you know, Christians aren't supposed to suffer. You're not living the fulfilled life. You're not living the wealthy life. You're not living the, the prosperous life. You're not living the, the advantageous, healthy, relationally beautiful life. Remember, they may be rich, but none of those guys who preach that way have a good marriage. You just know it. That's why they always have adulteries. Uh, but anyway, we're moving on. Uh, Jesus to them is saying, not be successful, fruitful, happy and chipper. He's saying, be faithful. Be faithful, meaning hold fast to the confession. Hebrews 10 will we'll, we'll use the language. Hold fast to the confession of the faith. Do not let go. Hold on to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Never hold on, never be tempted, never grasp for that statement that promises momentary life, Caesar is Lord, because you will die eternally if you live under that profession. Hold fast unto death. Just remain believing what you believe. Live consistently with all that you have been taught and what you believe. Be faithful. Persevere unto death. He doesn't, he doesn't cut it short and say, be faithful for six days. Be faithful until they start whipping you. Be faithful until they threaten you with death, and then I'll understand a rejection of my name. Be faithful unto death. Which sounds like to us, yeah, be faithful till the very end. But you're not thinking like a Christian if you think that's what it means. Because death is not the end. Be faithful unto death, and I'll see you in heaven. I'll see you at the banquet feast. I'll see in the, in, the, in the congregation of just souls made perfect. Be faithful just until death. Then all the good stuff really starts. Be faithful unto death, he tells them. The pastors, uh, a pastor in Smyrna in later decades would be uh, a man named Polycarp. Very, very famous if you do patristic readings of the early church. This story is widely known and and uh, frequently told, especially in line with, with this, uh, this church epistle. But his name was Polycarp. And he was a pastor up until his very uh, old years. He was more than 80 years old. And uh, he was an old, decrepit man, but with an amazing influence for, for Jesus. And as, as uh, in Smyrna, as the, 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 the reign, I believe it was under Domitian, as the persecution was coming down on the Christians, they knew, as well as the devil knows and as well as our country knows, you get the leaders to shut up. The people will follow. You kill the leaders, so they thought. The people will cower. Well, the more Christian leaders they killed, the more people were putting their hands up to be pastors and being martyrs and dying for the faith. At one point in later centuries, I'll just throw this in as a little bit of historical tidbit, they had to put out statements, news flashes, Christians, stop coming forward. We have enough to kill. <laughs> Colosseum can only hold so many people. I think the amount of Christians we have will be enough. Stop volunteering to die. Some of the pastors, their pastoral counsel in those early centuries had to be, I know I keep saying how good it is to die for Jesus. Don't volunteer. If you can't escape it, escape it. You know, someone's got to evangelize. I don't want to be the only one. Going back. Polycarp was a pastor, and in Smyrna, the persecution had come down, and it, they knew that they were after Polycarp. He was, people were cowering, and they, they'd meet Polycarp. They'd go to his church in Smyrna. They'd sit through a Bible study, and they'd be on fire. The, the, the enemy of the church knew, we need to kill this Polycarp fellow. And one time he, was, um, he had been sort of whisked out of the city, and he was staying out in a villa uh, at, at a faithful Christian's house. And, and a young servant girl had been abducted and was being tortured to tell the soldiers where Polycarp was. 
And Polycarp, through the night that she was being tortured, he had a dream from what he believed to be from God that his, his pillow was on fire and he could not escape it, but he was at perfect peace. And he knew that it was the Lord telling him, you're about to die by being burned. Don't run. The young lady, bless her, gave in to the torture, did not deny Christ, but gave up the position of where they were keeping Polycarp. And the soldiers rode to where Polycarp was. Now, when when the spies and the the security had seen the the soldiers coming, they ran to Polycarp. They said, we've got to get you out of here. Doesn't matter what happens to us, just leave. He said, I'm I'm not going to do that. God has told me this is my path. You can leave if you wish to. I would like you to set a table. When the soldiers pulled up, they entered the house and Polycarp opened the door and there was a full table full of food and fine wine to sit down with the soldiers, bless them. And he, he himself went off to another room to pray and they sat there and enjoyed a fine meal. After the meal, they put him on a horse, they took him in and on the way into the city, the soldiers were telling him, Polycarp, you're an old man. No one's going to care if you just give your name. Don't make us kill you. You don't have to do that. What a silly little thing to have this loyalty to an invisible Jesus. None of you have seen. Let's move on. This is silly. They didn't want to kill. You're never a hero when you throw an 80-something-year-old guy onto a stake, beating him up and stabbing him. You're never, you're never the tough Roman soldier. They didn't feel good about it. They were sorry. The, the mercy that he had shown them in the meal was just so heartbreaking to them. And, and yet he prayed and he was bold and he continued on. <clears throat> He was taken into the great um, arena to be burned at the stake, all because he would not burn the insults, incense to Caesar. He was compelled. He was told from the stand, you know, the Caesar told him, just burn the incense, give in, deny this Jesus of yours. He said, 80 and six years have I served him and he has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And then he told the men coming up to time to the stake, he said, don't insult me, go away. My courage will bind me here and keep me from running. He said, I bless you, Father, as he burned. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. This man was faithful unto death. He had read and no doubt preached many times the letter from Jesus to the church in Smyrna. He was a faithful witness. And he was able to do that, and he could call the other church members to do that, and Jesus could command the church to do that because of the next truth that we see. In the uh, next part of, uh, of verse 10, it says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was being called, cast off all fear. Following Jesus' example of going faithfully to death under obedience to God the Father. He knew their tribulation and he knew what was coming. Jesus was sovereign over it all. And what we're seeing here, Jesus is sovereign over death. He's the one who verse 8 has told us is resurrected and being resurrected is now sovereign over, as chapter 1 told us, death and Hades. He's got the keys. He decides who goes past him into death. He decides who goes past death into Hades. He decides who goes through death and straight into heaven. 
He is the one who is in control over all of those things, he is telling them. The one who conquers, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation talks in the language of the first death being physical death and the second death being the eternal death in hell. You don't go into the first death after you die. You go into the, sorry, the first death is where you go after you die. Punishment, temporary, until Jesus comes back. When he makes a new heaven and a new earth, he's also going to make a new hell. And in that new hell, people will be entering into the second death, the lake of fire, by which they receive, in, they receive a new indestructible body that will last and never corrode in an eternity of punishment. It can last and not break down and disappear, not be annihilated, but eternally last under the act of wrath of God. Revelation calls this the, the first death and the second death. This is what Polycarp knew. He knew there was a distinction. We all die and even die in a literal fire, but I'm escaping the ultimate fire. Remember what he said? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. That's the first death. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp died in the first death, but he was entirely free from the second death. Polycarp passed through the physical death and straight into spiritual life. So what does it mean to conquer? Jesus just said, to those who conquer, you will receive the crown of life. In other words, I will raise you up into eternal life. I will crown onto you the reward of dying. Jesus is the sovereign over. You don't get to give crowns unless you yourself have the ultimate crown. Jesus is the sovereign over death. Therefore, he can tell people, if I allow you to pass through death and you do so faithfully, you will receive a crown of life, a reward for your dying. But he says that that goes to the one who conquers. Freedom from the second death, the receiving of the crown of life is only for those who conquer. So what does it mean to conquer? To conquer is, your translation might say, overcome. It's the same word. It means to be victorious. The language was used in like the Olympic Games. If you were a victor, if you stood on the podium, you were a conqueror. You were, a, you were a, a, an overcomer. It's, the Greek word is uh, nikao, which is the same word you get for the swoosh brand Nike. It means a winner, an overcomer, a conqueror. For Christians to be overcomers means that we withstand and defeat our temptation for personal sin. It means that we withstand and overcome the temptation to give into persecution. So the temptation from the outside, temptation from the inside are all overcome. In fact, the Bible, the same author, John, will in fact use the language of overcoming, that we, we conquer the devil and in fact the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, he says, I'm writing to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word for overcome is conquered. You have conquered the evil one. The very same language being used, uh, the very same person who is persecuting the church. 1 John 5, 4, John says, For everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Those who live and do not throw away their faith, those who believe in the gospel promises and do not substitute those for temporary life 
or to escape the temporary fire. Those who hold on to the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection in our place and for our sins and never back down from it or walk away from it are those who conquer the world. Jesus, in Revelation 5, John is told that a, lamb has, that a lion has prevailed. A lion has overcome. And he looks, and what is, what is sung in Revelation 5 about Jesus? He's the one who conquered. The lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. So the same language you've used of Jesus, though he died, he still conquered. Though we may die, we're still conquering. We're still overcoming the devil and the world and all the temptations because we don't overcome the way a political army overcomes. We don't overcome by political force because you can punch your persecutor harder than you, harder than he can hit you. It's not because, like Peter, we pull out a sword and try and hack off the head of every person who persecutes the church. That's not how we overcome. The way that we overcome is by holding fast to our faith in Christ unto death. We, we conquer by obeying God unto death. We conquer as a Christian like the Smyrnians were called to conquer. We don't die. We pass into God's eternal abode. Now, probably, though, we're, we're, we're really not at much risk. Here, in our culture, in our society, we're not at much risk of your, your, your employer because you mispronounced somebody or, or celebrated Easter in an offensive way. You're probably not going to be beheaded. That's, that's, that's my guess. Not at this point in Australia's history. We're, we're much more afraid of much smaller things, aren't we? They'll say I'm weird. I'll lose my relationship with them that I've been carefully almost telling them I'm a Christian over the past 15 years. I've been working on this evangelism thing for a long time. I'll lose my promotion. I'll be thought of strangely. People will regard me as not one of them. That's usually enough to make us back down and not be faithful. And they'll hear a sermon like this and go, yeah, Polycarp, I'm a conqueror too. Put certain Facebook posts on private so other non-Christians can't see it. We're a very naturally, cowardly people, the human race. Christians need to, need to dunk ourselves in the story of the martyrs. Go and get yourself a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Go and read Fair, Fair Sunshine, the story of the Scottish Covenanters and the English Puritans who pushed back against, religion, against political tyranny and gave their life to death. And young Elizabeth and 80-year-old Elizabeth who would drown together in the river because they would not salute the queen during church. We need to realize how, how, how close we always are to cowering. We need to realize and learn about ourselves that we are probably less faithful like the Smyrnians were called to be than we've realized. We're, we're always tending to give ourselves a pat on the back when we need to have a kick up the backside. We need to genuinely deal honestly with ourselves. Where am I cowering? We often like to think of the idea of dying for Christ. Arrest me on the, on the Afghan border and I'll bear my, my neck and I'll live... I'll, we like to idolize and idealize the idea of dying for Jesus when what we should start doing, like the Smyrnians, is living for Jesus. Each, he gets to choose whether we get the crown of life through martyrdom. Maybe, maybe, like the Christians in the early centuries who are choosing to die, we're just being called live long, die of a natural cause, be faithful every day. Live for, can you give up your time? 
Can you give up your money? Can you give up your Netflix time? Can you give up, give up your hobbies? Can you give up precious, overloaded family time? Can you sacrifice some of those things for the kingdom, for Jesus? If not, very likely we would be faithful unto death if we cannot be faithful unto discomfort. We must always be pressing ourselves, Holy Spirit, show me where I am not faithful, where I would not and could not be faithful unto death. That is where Christians must find ourselves as we read these three verses, but to the unbeliever. The horrible warning is that you are entirely vulnerable and laid open to the second death. I'm not going to threaten you with a bus hitting you or something falling on your head or you're getting some terminal horrible disease. We all die. The scary part, the scary fact is that beyond death, there is death that makes death look like life. You would choose a slow, agonizing death a hundred times over the second death that is coming for you. And it is nothing more. God didn't have a bad day when he wrote the terms and conditions. He's not going to go crazy. All that he's going to give you, the only thing that the second death is, is precisely and exactly what you have earned through your disobedient, rebellious, criminal activity against God and his law. You're despising of God. You're acting like your father, the devil. Your hatred of Jesus Christ. You're breaking God's commandments. All of those things line up for you a pile of wrath that is tipping and it is going to fall on you in an eternity lest you repent. But every single person that Jesus is writing to here, every single person that is escaped the second death was just like you at some point fully and definitely, clearly, justly deserving the second death themselves. The call is this. Jesus has consumed in his physical death your second death. When he died, he died for God, absorbing God's wrath that was against your sin, meaning that you can now be free of that second death, free of your condemnation, entirely and perfectly, freely, fully forgiven when you just trust in Jesus. The one who is, who is speaking all of this, who is the glorified, resurrected sovereign of all, he says, I died for you so that you do not have to die under God's punishment. Believe in me and that's it. You will be one of mine. You will be one of the conquerors that come into eternal life upon your death. That is the good news. And that goes to anybody and everybody of every sinful background. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this letter from Jesus Christ through John, through the, through the word of God to us today, the letter to the Smyrnians, the letter to the church of Smyrna. And, and just as it is addressed to a local body, a church, and they had to corporately ask themselves, how, how are we doing this together? How can we encourage one another in this together? How can we keep one another from being faithless as a body? So also, Lord, we need to receive this as a, as a covenanted communal spiritual kingdom family, a body, a church, a, a group of people under Jesus Christ. We, Father, ask that by your spirit we would recognize where we are, where we are falling back in our faithfulness that would be even unto death, where we are allowing cowardice to sneak in, where we are, where we are compromising with, the, with the, the laws and the rules of the world around us and where we are giving in to the slander and allowing the, the name-calling of the other religious people around us to make us shrink back, Father God, we ask for faithfulness. We ask for perseverance that holds fast onto the confession and never wavers. Father God, we, we also think of this individually. 
as, as in any corporate church, there are individuals that are in fact not converted. In this room tonight, there are people who name Jesus outwardly, but inwardly belong to the synagogue of Satan, are in fact Satan's spiritual children. They despise Jesus, they hate his laws, they love their sin, and they do it as much as they can. We pray, Lord God, that they would no longer be considered our enemies, they would no longer be considered your enemies, but in the grace that is poured through Jesus Christ, you would make them your children. You would give them faith to believe in Christ and be joined to him and freed from the terror and the horror of the second death. Father God, please bless to us this time around your word. Bless us in our fellowship afterwards and bless us as we go into the world this coming week to proclaim Jesus who lived and died and rose for us and obey all that he has for us that we might be considered faithful that Jesus can receive glory. For it is in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.